0: And a long one. And I do warn you, my watch is still out for repair, so I don't know what's become of us today. We'll see. But he is longer than I. So, if we were to rough sketch our uh, chapter 9, what we were to do, and, and I do say, that I would double underline rough as a rough sketch, but we could maybe, quite possibly, looking at each section of the text of chapter 9, we could rough sketch it. Perhaps this way, there is a promise preview, okay, a preview to the promise through the scaffolding of the Old Testament, so you kind of think of the Old Covenant, and and for some of us this is a bit of heavy lifting uh, when we start speaking of covenants and testaments, we start thinking about how is this all working here and now for me, it can be a bit of heavy lifting, if I could help, think about chapter 9 so far for you who were with us in that little portion there of verse 1 through 10. Think of it somewhat like the Old Testament portion of Scripture, or the Old Covenant ministry of the priesthood that we're comparing to Christ, is in a sense the scaffolding that goes up around the building, and and, and the scaffolding is contributing to the building, but they are distinct. So we're looking at the covenant structure of the Old Testament as scaffolding. So, and then we're looking at the promise. That's promise preview in the first portion of chapter nine, one through ten, is the promise preview, verse one through ten, rough sketch. out the rest of the text. that we would enter into our text this morning, and we would say it is promise secure. So we have a scaffolding that then is beginning in this portion of the text, giving way. The workers are taking down the scaffolding, as it were. So it's coming down, that was structured around it. It's coming down, and there it is. Whoosh, pulling the huge cloak off of the edifice of the building, and there it is. Boom, the building. Structure, as it were. That's what we're looking at now. Not the structure of the scaffolding, but the structure of the building. The, the scaffolding is giving way to. Substance, but so scaffolding is critical in order for us to grasp the structure. So they're related, but they're not the same quality. So the promise that we're now gazing upon, prospuere, was promised, previewed through verses one through ten. So eleven through fourteen, the portion that we're in this morning, we're going to look at how that promise that was previewed is a promise that is now. Secure. And then the next portion we kind of hand rough, sketching out the text of chapter 9, we would say it is um, kind of promised plot, or where the where the where Christ does is All of its categories. Remember the Old Covenant ministry. Lest we kind of be a New Covenant people, a New Covenant ministry people, and we downplay the role of the Old Covenant, I think it must have been absolutely a nightmare. It must have been worthless. They must have not really had a meaningful walk with God in its context. We would err greatly if we were to look at the Old Covenant for the Old Testament that way. Because remember, we've already done the work, haven't we? Together as believers, we've already marched through the text, and we recognize that the Old Covenant ministry. Old Testament ministry was gracious. And it's provision that God gave to old Covenant members. He gave them a provision of a sacrificial system. He pronounced to them forgiveness of sins coming by faith to that sacrificial system, to the scaffolding. There was meaning. There was richness. Yet, it was deficient. covenant context that old covenant ministry and when i keep saying old covenant i'm referring to as you're thinking about it chronologically back in that old testament section of your bible or if you were to open it from its leather cover you would see this is the old testament we're talking about that portion there obviously when we're looking back there what was its deficiency principally it was gracious but deficient how so it could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They'd come by faith in a gracious provision. They could experience a communion that was genuine and a meaningful walk with God who was their covenant king, but it could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It was deficient. Look with me where he says that, just briefly, by way of introduction. Look over in chapter 7 if you're there. If you have a text of Scripture open, I would encourage you, open that text of Scripture so that we can both together, you and I, all of us, look at the text and thereby be strengthened that this isn't just a pastor standing up and suggesting certain things. But we can look at the text together and grow through this text. Look at chapter 7, how he speaks of this. It is deeply meaningful Yet, it is deficient in relationship to perfection. In chapter 7, verses 18 is where it begins. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19, for the law, that that old covenant ministry, the law made nothing perfect. That's its relationship to uselessness. Not that it's useless and meaningless altogether in all of its forms, but to perfection. Well, who needs perfection? Everyone. In relationship to that, it's weak and useless. Well, then we naturally ask, well, then what was its purpose? What is the nature? We're right back at the same thing, aren't we? We've been asking this question probably, we think we've been asking it way too many times. We have, we have, but it's helpful. Thinking of the entire Bible, what is the function then of the law if it's deficient in a critical category of perfection, righteousness, internalized in the conscience of the worshiper? If it's right there where my need is, yet right there where my need is, the law is deficient, then what was its purpose? or its function, what? To point you forward. That law would point to what? Promise. So through the ministry of the law, I learned, Paul says, my own weakness. I learned of my own sinfulness. And yet by faith I believe. And through that structure of the Old Covenant ministry, of the sacrificial system, I gazed upon this act by faith and saw that God is going to perform for me all that is necessary. Law served me, pushed me forward to promise. Let me show you how he argues that way by way of introduction again. Look with me right there in chapter 8. Now we're in chapter 7. We're moving to chapter 8. And this is the relationship of the law to promise. What was the purpose? If it cannot perfect, then what was its purpose but to point forward, to promise? Look in verse 5 of chapter 8, if you're there, just briefly. Verse 5. Speaking of the sacred ministry of the priests, in the old covenant ministry, he speaks this way to you. They, that is the priests, serve a copy. There's its nature, there's its function. They're serving meaningfully, graciously, substantively, but a copy. He goes on to further describe the nature and the function of this Old Covenant as a shadow. This is their meaningful ministry, but it's still a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, this, this place of worship, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the, what's that term there? Pattern. That was shown you on the mountain. So they serve a copy, shadow, and a pattern. To point to what? To instruct the conscience of the worshiper How? To promise. Verse 6. Promise has come. But as it is now, to you this morning, each of you, as it is. Here's you in the redemptive story. You're in the here and the now. As it is Christ see that verse 5 served meaningfully. But you point me forward to who? Christ. And he has obtained a ministry. And look at how his ministry is described in relationship to the scaffolding. It is much more excellent than the old. The building is here and it is much more excellent than the scaffolding. As the covenant he mediates is better. What do you mean better? It's enacted on better promises. Here we sit this morning in that ministry, the ministry of Christ, the Son of God, Son of Man, only Redeemer. His ministry is now. Our text this morning in chapter 9, to look at the substance of that ministry, and chapter 9 now, as I kind of make my move into the text, is there in verse 10 notice it's referred to in the text, this ministry of Christ, this time that is now is referred to there in verse 10 as a time of, do you see the very last phrase of verse 10? The time of Reformation. I made a really bad joke, but I wanted to say it again this week. Right, I got my return right there. Time of Reformation is not the time of Calvin, though we praise that. That was the joke. (laughs) Thanks. The the, the time of Reformation that is described here in the text is not that of the 16th century, but it is that of the ministry of Christ. What does he mean by reform? A time of reformation, but that the scaffolding is down and the substance is here. And it served, and it served to point us forward to the building as the scaffolding was constructed. But when we take all the scaffolding down, we don't stare at it. Like, wow, that's magnificent. It's a pile of steel now. That's it. We used it. It served. But look, a building is here. Oh, yeah. That is beautiful. Never mind, I'm not going to worry about the scaffolding so much anymore. Okay, great. Then I guess we sufficiently pointed you forward. Here it is. Time of reformation. The time of substance to shadow. When we think we might ask ourselves this question. Did an old covenant saint, did, did an individual really in that old covenant ministry? I know that you're saying that the priests are serving and the, the people are bringing their animals by faith and they're looking upon that sacrifice, that blood offering, and by faith they're embracing God's promise in it. But how much did they really grasp out of that? How much did they really look forward through that? Because I think like, we can see it now, and we're looking back and saying, they knew this, they knew that. And we're saying, if I was to read that passage, I don't think I would say they knew all that. How much did they really grasp? How much did they really know? I would quickly just buy rabbit trail offer two thoughts to each of us. And that is, if we look into the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, he speaks to those who are his combatants. Pharisees. Those who, we know everything. We know all about the Old Covenant. It's right here. It's memorized. It's hanging right here. I know all of it. And I am from Abraham. right, where the covenant was made for some of us remembering Genesis there. We're Abraham's offspring. And Jesus reminds them quite quickly that they are not. And then he goes on in John 8 to explain Abraham. And this is, this is answering the question that I have posed to you. How much did they really grasp? He says this of Abraham. Abraham saw my day and was glad. How did Abraham see Jesus' day through means that God instituted, that spoke a better word, that pointed forward to a promise, that pointed forward to the substance, filling up all that the shadow intended. Abraham, Jesus says, saw it and was glad. They saw more than just an animal being slaughtered. By faith, they saw God's promise that was coming. Then it is also Jesus in his ministry in John 6. That was John 8, John 6. Jesus says, you must not sufficiently have read Moses. That is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Perhaps you have not read that sufficiently because if you did, if you read it with your glasses on, That is, the glasses of faith, if you had embraced it, then you would embrace me. Because Moses spoke of me. There was promise in the Old Covenant in a way that a saint embraced as it looked forward to the substance, to the time of Reformation. And when is the time of Reformation where the scaffolding is sufficiently taken down and the building is here, the substance is here, The writer of Hebrews says, it is now. There are three things this morning that I want to speak about this time of reformation or the three pieces that are new, referring to the newness of the time of reformation or what we will kind of be in and out saying the new covenant. So we have an old covenant ministry and a new covenant ministry or what we will call, as the writer says in verse 10, the time of reformation. Three things. I think we need to grasp in order to rightly appreciate and receive what this meaningful Reformation is for us this morning. Three things. Number one, just kind of, I want to outline them for you just briefly, and then let's dig in. Number one, I think it, it is upon us rightly to grasp from the text the timing of the Reformation so that we can really bear down and receive that it is now by evidence from the text. The timing of the Reformation is critical. So let's grasp so that we can own its implications no reason to scurry along run out ahead of ourselves reap its benefits and really not know if we're in it or not so let, 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 let's go by due process here let, let's take when is the time of the reformation clearly taught from the text and then let's move on secondly to the means of the reformation that brought it about so we're looking at the timing are we sure and we're looking at the means how did it come and then we're looking at finally number 3 the result of said reformation, the result of the reformation. So far, if you were to draw in your mind, you already know my final piece to you on the result of the reformation. You're all thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. You're with me. I know it. I can see it. Remember, the old covenant ministry is the result to the worshiper who came by faith. It was deficient to do what? The text says, purify the... Conscience of the worshiper. What are we sure that the result will be in the time of Reformation then? It will sufficiently cleanse and purify the conscience of the worshiper. We rejoice in that, don't we? But again, before we run out and grasp its fruits, let's come back and plant the seed, watch the tree grow, and then reap the tree for all of its fruits. Okay, great. So step one, the timing of the Reformation. Look with me in the text, if you would, at this time of Reformation beginning in verse 10. I've kind of introduced it 11 different ways, but we'll just keep going. Verse 10 begins here, but but speaking of the Old Covenant, right there in verse 9, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worship. Here is its deficiency in relationship to perfection. How many need it? Everybody. And it's deficient to seek it there. But This covenant that is deficient in the purpose of purification of the conscience deals only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. Speaking of the old covenant ministry, imposed. So it's functional uh, by God, graciously imposed and in place until the time of reformation. Look at verse 11 as it leads us down this timing of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Two pieces about this I want to come back and kind of deal with just briefly before we move on to the second piece of our quest this morning referring to the means of that Reformation is the timing. Notice how the text says, until the time of Reformation, this old covenant is operative until when? The defining period in redemptive history when the shadow gave way to the substance. Okay? the defining point in redemptive history, human history. We're tying this idea, not to the abstract, but to a point in human history. Real, flesh, blood, actual time, space. It's included an actual point in redeeming history when shadow gave way to substance. Who or what is the substance, is the natural question that we would ask. Now you're all running out and saying, I already know you already read it in verse 11. Wait, just give due process with me. The question you would ask yourself had I not already read for you verse 11, the question that would be on your mind until, so should I go to the old covenant system and sacrifice animals and follow the temple complex worship? Should I? No. It's operative until the time of Reformation. My question is, when is the time of Reformation? That point in human history where everything changed, this no longer sufficed. It was no longer operative. And the question is, when is that? It is now. How do I know? Shadow has given way to its substance. Well, then the next question is, what's the substance? Or who is the substance? that I wouldn't get caught up in the details of the scaffolding. Here I am picking through the steel. Where's the kernel of truth here? Where's the meaningful worship here? Wait a minute. Dude, guy, look at the building. That's the point. So we're asking. I don't want to get lost in the scaffolding. Where is the substance or who is it? Verse 11 makes quite clear, doesn't it? I've already read it. Verse 11. But when... So the time of reformation is connected to the person... In verse 11, when Christ appeared is the defining moment in human history and redemptive history when the scaffolding is fully and finally taken down of the old covenant ministry. No longer do we worship through food, drink, various washings and regulations for the body that were imposed until He came. He has come. No longer do we serve God that way or worship in that manner. He is the sum total of all of the old covenants, promises, provisions, and proclamations. It is him, Christ Jesus, who is the sum total of everything. If you're reading the Old Testament text then, if you're at home and you're looking through the Old Testament, or you just thought, you grabbed a Bible and you thought, I'm just gonna start right here in the opening verse. I'm gonna go past all the lists, go past all the publication notifications, and I'm gonna go right here, Genesis 1:1. Where is this text leading me? What am I to grasp from this text all the way through? That Jesus Christ is the sum total contained therein. Paul says it like this, if you wish to jot this down or not, I'll provide it for you. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God, all of them, find their yes in Him. That is, what do you mean by find their yes? Find their completion or their goal in Him. How many? How many promises of God that He made to His people find their yes and completion in Jesus? How many, believer? How many? All of them. Not some of them. All of them. Look where our author has already described this. What this means then by implication of Jesus and faith in him. Look back just quickly over at chapter 7. Just briefly at verse 22 where he began his argument here. What does that mean that Jesus is the sum total of the Old Testament promise, provision, and pronouncements? What does it mean for me today regarding Jesus since it is... His ministry that is current. It means I must look to Him. Verse 22. This makes Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah of God. It makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He is the sum total substance. Of everything you need. If you lie naked before God. He has the clothing that you need. Stripped, bare, unrighteous. On judicial grounds of condemnation. It is his person and work. That cloaks you and covers you from judgment. Finding meaning in life, substance in your reality, it is found contained in Him. He is the sum total of meaning. We must know also, before we move on, from the time of the Reformation, now that we have squarely placed it, now in the ministry of Christ, notice how he also builds upon it, that it is connected, the time of Reformation, the time when the Old Covenant is passed away, it is obsolete. We are now, all of us, to look to Jesus by faith. He is the sum total of all of God's yeses. All of his promises are received in him. He builds upon this timing, as you notice in verse 11, back in chapter 9, sorry, in chapter 9, verse 11, he builds on this, where Christ appeared in history, becoming the substance of all shadows. Notice next, when he appeared distinctly as high priest of the good things that have come. Notice how he describes this, the blessings that have come, and then he says, through... The greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Now, if you'll keenly look at your text, I just want to piece together something out of verse 11 that we need to reap out. And that is, notice, when Christ appeared as high priest. So, as high priest of the good things that have come. Do you see what he just said there? That the good things that have come, have, they, don't, they don't fall from the sky like raindrops. Maybe you come over here. Maybe you come over here. They're not trickling down. Do you notice the good things that have come, have come how? Through what means? through Jesus as our high priest. W- w- why am I pausing there and making a big deal of it? You're like, great, two thumbs up. But why? Why is that so significant? Why is that significant? Because to have Christ is to also possess all of his benefits. The good things are not just good things in and of themselves. They're good benefits that come from Jesus. To possess Him is the good thing. To be possessed by Him is the good thing. Whereby the good things have come. It isn't about just like a better position, a better spot, maybe a particular blessing or two, and maybe him. It's a sum total or a sum nothing. I got that wrong in my small group a couple of weeks ago too. A sum or nothing. It's him. Connected to his high priestly work, how we then experience all the good things. This drives us yet again to the constant refrain of the book. Consider, look to Jesus. So as he appeared there, do you notice that where he appears is the heavenly sanctuary? appears in the heavenly sanctuary, that is his comment there, in the more perfect tent that, that, that is not of this creation. So he appears in the heavenly sanctuary. After his life, obedience, death, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, he appears in the heavenly courtroom, in the heavenly sanctuary. And then we'll get to the means of the blessings. But then as he has appeared, blessings have come. He appears, he's raised, blessings have come. The question is on your mind, I know it. What are the blessings? What are the good things that have come? To those who are in Christ, united to him by faith, you have him, you have all of his benefits. There is not a life within Christ whereby you experience some of them. And if you really work hard, you're going to experience even more of them. And if you work the hardest, maybe you'll experience all of them. That's a confusion of what we've been battling for a long time. Law and gospel. The gospel cannot be done. The gospel is to be believed. To have him is to have his benefits. Everyone in here who confesses Christ, who looks to him by faith, is the same. So what are the good things? What are those then that all of us by faith experience? What are those good things? Well, he's already articulated them. Look quickly there in chapter 8. I'll just read them briefly for you just so that we can rehearse. What are these benefits that have come? Not in the future, not to a particular peoples in a particular history, but to all peoples in history who look to Jesus. Verse 10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is what I'll do. After what days? After the days of the ministry of Christ. In the days of the ministry of Christ. I will put my laws into their minds. Look at this glorious gift. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. This is he who is appearing in the heavenly courtroom, and as he is there, here are the blessings. To have him is to have this. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They shall not teach each one of his neighbor, each one. Know the Lord, for they, my people, will all know me. They will be called, and they will hear, and they will come from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities because of Christ, and I will remember their sins." No more. These are the good things, and to have Him the good thing is to experience these good things. He is the sum total of these promises. Consider with me then, if that is the timing, I sugge- I, I briefly outlined to you, we would cover the timing of the Reformation, and I hope that I have convinced you it is now. Secondly, with the appearance of Christ, we then look at the means of such a Reformation. What are the means that could bring about such an era of mercy and grace? That it's not about what I do, but about what I believe and by believing I will therefore be empowered to do but I can't get that in reverse that by my doing I will finally receive but rather I receive and empowered in my doing this is critical we grasp that it is just that our faith find rest in our object who is Jesus Christ the Lord. And it is he who then looks and justifies the ungodly. Not that I see him there and I begin my journey. <laughs> You'll never get there. I see him there and I embrace him by faith. And he justifies. Then, He empowers them. And we'll get to that. That's the result. I already ended my message, but I won't let you out. Let's keep going. The means of the Reformation, what would bring about these tremendous blessings? Well, you kind of have known it from this passage, and you notice here, it is, if I could read for you, verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places. How many times? Once. Once. That's critical. If you're there, you're, you're like triple underlining that, especially the men who have the pens. That's an inside joke, and I heard a mumble in the back. Thanks, Jan. Moving on. Once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but rather, see, a no, shift by means. What is the means of the Reformation. By means, this this reformation comes by means of his own blood. That's the means of the benefits. His own blood. The question that you're asking: What makes his blood superior? You have to ask that question to embrace this text implications. You have to ask it. You have to think in your mind, what makes his blood superior? Prior, in the promise that was previewed in the first portion of chapter 9, the priests are operating in ministry, and they are taking with them blood of bulls and goats, etc., etc. They're operating in meaningful ministry that way by taking the blood of some creature that is prescribed in the law, and that's meaningful, Yet now, in the promise secured, it isn't by blood of bulls and goats and calves. It isn't by that. It's by another means. We're asking, what means? The means of his own blood is the means. How many times did the priest go in? Repeatedly. How many times did he go in? Once. A tremendous escalation. And so we ask the blood is the link. What makes his blood superior? The writer has been creating this context for us for quite a while. We've all been racking our brains, asking the same questions, grinding them to grasp the significance of the text. What gives us a context for grasping the significance and superiority of the blood of Jesus compared to mine, compared to an animal's, compared to anybody else? And the answer is covenant. Covenant. Covenant is the context that we have to enter into to grasp the purity of the blood of Christ. What covenant am I referring to? Many of us remember the garden situation between God and Adam, don't we? And there it is in the garden context, in the garden sanctuary. Do you remember? There's Adam and Eve, and God interacts with mankind in a covenantal structure relationship, in an arrangement. And he creates this covenant, and he tells Adam, you can eat of All of this. I have made all of these provisions. You can experience this communion with me. But there is a don't also to this covenant. And it is, don't eat of the tree this. Do and live. What did Adam do in the arrangement? He disregarded the communion and the union and the fellowship, the intimacy and the blessing. He disregarded it. And he ate of the don't. Because if you do, you'll die. So what occurred if you embrace this from the holy text of Scripture? What occurred? category across the pages of scripture where how much experienced death and decay how much of the earth how much if you embrace this from the holy text how much of it embraced? how much of it experienced death and decay how much all of it everything paul says in romans 8 all the way in the new testament text in romans 8 he says creation still groans for deliverance What did God do as a result of this decay? He made a provision, didn't he, in the law? He made a provision. He made blood offerings. He made a sacrificial system whereby you could come by faith and experience a provision of grace. Why? Why the bulls and the bloods and the goats? Why? Because there was not a man in Adam's condition of righteousness, uprightness, whereby he could hear the law of the Lord and righteously respond, keeping the law in the heart. There was not a man, there was now a provision, though. There were sinners, yet a gracious provision. What happened to the command for perfect obedience? Did it go away? Is it gone? No. What makes Jesus' blood superior? What? What you hold dear? That he is virgin born, not in the sinful lineage of Adam. You mean that's where the animals are going away because there is one who is now a virgin born, upright and integral, flesh of men, bone of men, pure. Pure. An integral, you mean it? There's one that is born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the weight of the law, to not purify just the flesh, but you mean he's going to purify the conscience? Yes. Contingent upon what? Perfect obedience. This is why the New Testament speaks of Adam and Christ in comparison. Jesus is the second Adam. The standard must have changed. It never changed. And it doesn't change today. What is the standard that I must ascend to? Perfection. What is the standard I'm able to achieve? Well, you tell me. not perfection then you're in need who can attain to perfection one who has already Jesus of Nazareth the son of God what did he do with all that obedience he laid down his life shed his blood and was the means by which forgiveness can finally be pronounced. It's not bulls and goats and calves. It's by the blood of Jesus who is our perfect, spotless righteousness. What makes His blood so special? Perfect obedience sinlessness finally the last portion I know I'm probably going long I warned you I didn't have my watch you had a chance to leave I'm at the final portion this final piece the beautiful fulfillment of Jesus as the means of such reformation where we can hear our sins have been forgiven is his own blood The final piece then in the text is, how exactly does he redeem and purify? What is the result of such a provision? Look at verses 12 through 14. I just simply read it and I'll conclude with you this morning. Verses 13, I'll begin. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. For if that is true, and you know it is, he's asking you, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself, And he did so without blemish as he offered himself to God. If one could cleanse the conscience, or one could purify the flesh, how much more will Jesus' sacrifice purify our conscience from dead works? How is it that Christ can secure an eternal redemption, purify, and empower a people? How can he do so? The text answers by his perfect obedience and sacrifice and the sending forth of his Spirit. Do you see the function of the Spirit there at the end? The Spirit of God? functioning to purify and empower a people. Not on dead works, but to serve the living God. Let me ask you this final question then. What is your union like to Christ? What is it? Is there a result that is freeing to you? in the purity of your conscience. Have you been set free mentally, emotionally, spiritually from your dead works? No, I'm still chased by them. Then flee to Jesus. I fled to Jesus, but I'm still plagued by them. Don't be. Because to possess him is to possess all of his benefits. Purity of conscience. Power of spirit. Eternal redemption living a life in service to God. To possess Him, the thing, is to possess all the good things. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for a time in the text this morning whereby we, once again, through Your text, look to Jesus. I would pray for everyone in here, my own soul among those. Work Your Word into our minds, through the mind, transform the heart. We know this is your work to do. For when you resurrected and appeared, by means of your own blood, you secured an eternal redemption for your people. You sent forth your spirit, whereby we are renewed and empowered. So for the people of God in here that heard the word of the Lord, let it do just that. Go in by the Spirit and empower to confess sin and leave guilt where it belongs with you and experience your renewing power in grace and forgiveness. Let them hear the good things. I will remember their iniquities no more. No more. Let them hear that as they look to Jesus. And for those here who haven't yet received Christ by faith, they have not taken the faith and placed it upon Christ, resting in Him, whereby He is the object, is renewing the soul, saving from sin. For those who perhaps have not done that, I would pray that your Spirit would do the same work through the Word. Let them hear that they can have the good thing who is Christ the Lord, the substance and thereby have all the good things that come with it. Forgiveness, renewal, purity of conscience, a life of meaning. For we were all designed for that. Meaning. In Christ's name I do pray these things, that your Spirit do them among us. Amen.